previously on the R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. But to me, Ketchikan at the finish line is the best. You hit the dock and you have this community that surrounds you. It's a community that you've built up over the last week. It looked like you were teared up. I oh, was so touched. Totally teared up. Yeah. I was I mean, so touched. I mean, what you guys did is like the, the total essence of this. Mm. It is so, so noble. There's nothing better than that kind of warm welcome when you hit the dock and you're exhausted and there's somebody grabbing your lines and handing you a beer. Speaking of struggle, have you ever asked yourself why you are interested in the race to Alaska? Why are you intrigued enough by this race to be 11 episodes deep in a podcast about it? I'm willing to bet that a big part of it has to do with the risk, struggle, and adventure of it all. So in the next episode, we'll dig into those things more deeply, the risk, the struggle, and the adventure. As we talk to racers and race officials about the epic saga that is the race to Alaska. Join us next time, June 27. Welcome back to the R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. I'm Angel Mathis, the host and producer of the Boldly Went podcast, and I'm excited to be partnering with Race to Alaska to bring you this 14-part podcast following the 750-mile Race to Alaska. This is episode 12 of 14 that chronicles the quest to win $10,000 in a non-motorized, unsupported boat race through the iconic Inside Passage. In this episode, which is the first of two parts, we'll have a discussion about what it is that makes those stories so powerful and immediately inspiring. We'll highlight the things that make this event not just a race, but a real adventure and a genuine old school saga. We'll talk to racers and officials about the impact the events already having on their lives and highlight the struggles they had to overcome in order to participate. In these episodes, most, not all, most of the racers that we are featuring did not finish. And I'll be talking about why their experiences were life-changing anyway. Every great saga or classic adventure story is at heart about a hero overcoming a massive challenge. Whether that's slaying a dragon, destroying the Ring of Power, or defeating Lord Voldemort. So to start, it's worth noting that while we like to joke around a lot, and that the race organizers themselves rarely publish anything that's more than 40% serious, behind all the humor is a stark reality of real danger and challenge. Today, we're getting serious, mostly. One of the most quoted descriptions about the race to Alaska is found on the event website where the race is introduced as being, quote, like the Iditarod, but on a boat with a chance of drowning, being run down by a freighter or eaten by a grizzly bear. Funny, right? And memorable. But no, really. 
Participating in the race to Alaska means putting yourself at least at some amount of risk of drowning, being run down by a freighter, or being eaten by a grizzly bear. The being eaten by a grizzly bear thing. Ha ha, yeah, that's funny. But no, really, that almost happened this year. Christian Patrick on Team Try Baby Try was chased by a juvenile grizzly and its mother while taking a break on shore, thankfully managing to escape. If you've been following this podcast, you'll also remember that on the first leg of the race, Team Funky Dory were swamped in Victoria Harbor by a massive passing ferry. While it wasn't exactly the same as getting run down by a freighter, it's the same idea. And at the post-race open mic gathering in Ketchikan just after they finished, Team MBR laughed through an offhanded comment about an experience that with a few slight differences could have ended in drowning. Yeah, also our um, boat's not the most waterproof we were finding out. So there's leaks, like the whole hull deck join is kind of one big leak. And then the mast, the, the mast is another leak. And the, the lazarette hatches are also a bit of a leak. And just about everything. These are just three of the dozens and dozens of experiences we've heard about. The risks in the race to Alaska may be funny, but they are also genuinely real. Any number of things could go wrong, from boat failures to sleep deprivation to hypothermia to medical emergencies. For all who attempt it, the race is a difficult dragon to slay. We had a long conversation about the race with Jake Beatty. Jake's the executive director at the Northwest Maritime Center, and he's also the brain that the race idea sprung out of. He told us that the challenge and risk of the race, at least to some degree, is by design. I think, you know, there at some point in the last five races, we, we stumbled on a couple different realizations. And one is, one is that the race, the secret sauce of the race is that it has to be just hard enough and a little bit annoying. <laughs> that just hard enough special sauce that Jake talks about is the secret to what transforms this event from any old boat race into a true epic. Jake told us that the race to Alaska puts participants through challenging waters. It takes away the normal safety mechanism, a boat's motor. They make that a rule in order to be annoying, yes, but also to make this an experience that will deeply impact those who participate. When asked how he feels about being a person who's helped create this challenge for participants, Jake said, The roots of this really, for Daniel and I, started when we were our bound instructors in and around the same time. And while we're not in the boats with the people for the race to Alaska, I feel like a lot of the same process is going on where there is learning and transformation that's happening for the participants. And we can observe and we can nudge. And we can have faith in that those are meaningful experiences that, you know, our bound would call it the value-forming experiences of the outdoors, right? So those creating opportunity for what I call crucible moments, right, where you are beyond your comfort, you're beyond support, and it's just you and the raw truth of everything you bring and everything that is in the environment. And we're there to support slash encourage but i mean we really don't know what's going on right so we can only begin to guess and really only begin to approximate 
The Race to Alaska is an event that is designed specifically to impact people's lives who participate. So how does it feel to be the dungeon master for this particular quest, encouraging people to take on such an epic experience? How do the dungeon masters cope knowing the risks the racers face? How does a race like R2AK avoid setting people up to do stupid things or get people in over their heads when there are so many risks? Every year and with every team and with every day, we play trust in the people who are in the race to be their best selves. I mean, truly, there's nothing we can do to prevent people from doing dumb things. <laughs> I mean, other than telling them you have our faith and that you're here in the race because we believe in you and we believe in your ability to make better decisions than you even know you can make right now at the starting line on the on-ramp to this crazy thing that you signed up for. But by stepping across the starting line, we're trusting you not just with yourselves, but with the future of this race. And if you value the experience and the culture and the community you're surrounding yourself with by choosing to be a part of it, you are also responsible for it. So it's almost the central tenet of the race really is the truest form of community in that we depend on the racers as much as the racers depend on us, maybe more. The race vets applicants carefully, and they only allow remarkable people to participate. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch to describe all the racers as a bunch of heroes. So the trust that Jake talked about isn't naive. It's grounded in the proven adventure experience that all our 2AKers have. I personally have almost no sailing experience, and for me the things these racers are doing seem impressive. But when we spoke with Katie Stewart of Team Razzle Dazzle, now a four-time finisher, she was nonchalant about the risks involved. I don't really, I don't, I don't really think it's risky, but I also, I guess, do put a lot of thought into all of the things, including, you know, human parts that we may need to repair. So we go with a pretty beefy, in-depth damage repair kit. And, I mean, this year I brought an EMT with a really great medical kit. But, you know, we're always prepared for burns and breaks and breaks of equipment. And, you know, I always kind of have a, a mental list of realistic spares, you know. Team Razzle Dazzle always seemed relaxed when we encountered them. So Katie's nonchalance wasn't surprising. But it also shouldn't be taken as a sign that the race is easy. Tim spent a half hour speaking with her, and Katie listed challenges ranging from dodging logs to dealing with a kitchen fire on board. As we dug in a little bit deeper, she admitted that part of the reason she wasn't stressed was that she is used to dealing with the risk at home and in daily life. Sailing-wise, I don't think that my decisions on the race are any different than not on the race, honestly. But I'm also a pretty conservative sailor and I'm really not a racer so I don't think there's a big change for me yeah and that's, that's a cool <laughs> I'm not a winner <laughs> yeah <laughs> no but that's a, I mean I think that that's an interesting point between the sort of front of the pack and the middle of the pack because you do hear a lot of stories from the front about people making decisions based on the desire to win that they might not make under other circumstances like you know going four days without sleep and then sailing through the night and 
the midst of like a million logs at 20 knots or whatever. <laughs> but in the back, I feel like. Well, I do do all those things. I mean, we don't stop unless we absolutely have to. We definitely hit logs. <laughs> <laughs> so I do all those things, but it's just maybe that I do them at home too. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's good. That's getting to the heart of the heart of it a little bit. You're <laughs> somebody who's like, you're, con- I mean, you're conservative for the race to Alaska, but maybe in just your general style, you're actually not, yeah. as a sailor, you're not that, <laughs> not that precious. I think it's just, and it's not just as a sailor, just my everyday life has a whole lot of risk and risk assessment and things that a lot of people would consider impossible or crazy. So maybe it's just that the race doesn't seem as impossible or crazy to me. Katie's a salvage officer for a commercial diving and salvage company, so her career is focused on managing the risks associated with swimming around in shipwrecks, pulling out the valuable bits. In other words, she's basically a combination of a pirate and Aquaman. With people like Katie in the race, it's no surprise that Jake and the organizers can sleep comfortably at night. The essence of any epic saga is that it features a challenge that is just on the edge of possible. The inspiration comes in achieving something that seems unachievable, but success is less certain than in fantasy novels. The high level of difficulty of the Race to Alaska course guarantees that some of the most qualified participants will find that completing it is not possible. One of the teams that didn't finish this year was Team R2 Ake. That's the paddle wheel boat for people who have been listening. They admittedly increased the level of difficulty for themselves when they took a few days off so one team member, Lionel Jensen, could fly to Edmonton during the race to attend his PhD graduation. See what I mean? These people are all a bunch of heroes. Here's Lionel describing the moment that his team decided to quit. We're here talking on Skype where he called me from a busy cafe. This was getting towards the end of our race. Uh, this was our second night in Johnson Strait. It was a, another really good day for us. There was a, it was a fair amount of wind, but we were still in a good place. We certainly had our hands full, but the boat was sailing well. And then we started listening to this mayday call, and we, we started trying to figure out if it was a fellow racer. And we heard the Coast Guard ask, are you in the race to Alaska? And then, do you have your tractor on? We could only hear the Coast Guard side of the story. And then we hear the, the general mayday go out that, unfortunately, they, they didn't have a life jacket on. And it was just a little bit spooky there for a bit. And a fishing boat got by. After the mayday went out, it didn't seem like he was in the water that long before he got picked up, which was very fortunate. That was definitely a contributing factor to our decision to pull out, though, was just already having had what felt like a lot of close calls and then listening to that mayday go out. The mayday you heard Lionel describe was sent out by John Guider of Team You Either Do Stuff or You Don't, who we talked to in the June 10th episode of this podcast. He's fine, thankfully, but John did spend 30 minutes in 50-degree water after his boat capsized in Johnstone Strait. Lionel described his experience in the race, and he gives us a lot of insight into what it feels like to be out there in the midst of all these challenges, day after day, and the way that the race can wear you down. Well, it was, there weren't any stretches that really came easy. There was just, there were just situations that created some anxiety. So there was that episode off of Cape Lazo where really confused sea state. We're getting pushed around pretty good and 
when we turned to run, we were overpowered, which is a dangerous situation to be in. Having only two of us on the boat, and I preferred to do all the pedaling to keep Dad off the pedals. When we were coming up to the north end of Georgia Strait, there's not a lot of places to get in, and the wind died, and you're just a long way from land, not really sure if the forecast is going to pan out and the wind's going to come back or if you're just going to have to paddle for another seven or eight hours to get in. And I don't know if it's that you're starting to get a little bit behind on leaf at that point because that's, that's not a particularly dangerous situation, but it's not a comfortable position to be in. Um, and even just right at the end of the race, we really hadn't made up our minds. We'd had a slow morning from Telegraph Co. to Alert Day and didn't catch that morning out because we were trying to just sort of get rest and get ready for the next big push. We were really happy with how quickly we got through Discovery Passage in Johnson Street. And then we just thought, okay, well, we've got the ebb going our way. It's going to be an easy two-hour pedal to get to Port McNeil, and we'll spend the night there, and then we'll, you know, it's only 20 more miles to Port Hardy. And that was where we thought we had a decision to make if we wanted to stay in the race or not. And it was dead calm, windy, had said there'd be no wind. The government of the forecast was calling, they had a high wind warning in effect. And up there, it seems like the forecast, you don't know who to believe. This squall just came out of nowhere and hammered us. We got the main up, managed to get one reef in the main, couldn't get the second reef in. The main sheet got hung up in the bike pedals and had us knocked right over and now looking at it in hindsight, you know, when you're getting knocked over in that situation, as the boat's getting rolled, the main's getting depowered. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't get fully knocked down. But in that moment, it just feels like this was supposed to be a nice, easy pedal, and nothing's coming easy on this trip. And I think that it was that final episode that just sort of tipped the scale because the forecast had no friendly wind. <laughs> for the next five or six days to get us around Cape Cod. There's nothing but hammering from the northwest. The Grim Sweeper was going to be leaving two days later, and we'd only gotten about two and a half days ahead of it at that point. And as soon as you're past Port Hardy, it becomes a lot harder to exit the race. So just sort of a, all of those factors adding up together was what... You know, I, Dad had sort of had his fill, and I was very happy to go along with that. In this episode, we've talked a lot about the risks and challenges associated with the experience. The race organizers are actively and intentionally making it as difficult as possible, and they do this to create an experience that's life-changing for anyone brave enough to participate. Is it working? Is all of this struggle really achieving its intended goal? In the next episode, we'll hear from two teams who show that it is, Holopuni and Funky Dory. That's it for today's R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. Huge thanks to Race to Alaska for bringing this crazy adventure into the world and all the crazy adventurers who are doing it, who have done it, who have finished it, and who are fodder for this podcast. Other thanks for this podcast are attributed to and Cruise, Northwest Maritime Center, Team MBR, Team Razzle Dazzle, Team R2 Ake, Jake Beatty, Michaela Elias, the audio editor and production assistant, Tim Mathis, the lead writer, episode production by Boldly Went. 
Also, two, Dungeon Masters, Aquaman, Risk Management, Logs, Secret Sauce, Paddle Wheels, PhDs, and R2AK Heroes. If you're still listening, thanks. Get all the daily details about the race to Alaska at r2ak.com. Get additional R2AK content and reporting from our website or link to the regular weekly Boldly Went podcast featuring the brief and true adventure stories told by outdoorists of all kinds at boldlywentadventures.com. Follow us both on Instagram and Facebook at Race to Alaska and at Boldly Went Adventures. I'm Angel Mathis, proudly bringing you this podcast from the finish line in Ketchikan with the race to Alaska. Ignite your adventure.